You're listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia, and I'm assisted behind the scenes by my sound engineer, Justin Ward. This is a podcast about politics, society, science, and art, and about how everyone is wrong apart from us. I hope to provide a forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum and counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, everyone. My guest today is Nicholas Grossman. Uh, Nicholas is politics and international relations professor at the University of Illinois, and um, he is the senior editor of Arc Digi, Arc Digital, the magazine. Um, and I think as some of you who follow me on Twitter know, I am actually a paid subscriber to Arc Digital, and um, I subscribe to very few things because my income level is still pretty low. Ario is operating on a shoestring budget. Um, if you're supporting Ario, please don't support Arc Digital instead. But I do encourage you, if you can support us both, to support Arc Digi because um, they're doing fantastic work. It's worth subscribing just for Nicholas's and Kathy Young's articles alone, in my opinion. Um, so, well done for that. I'll put a link to ArcDigi's Substack in the show notes. And Nicholas is also the author of the 2018 book, Drones and Terrorism, Asymmetric Warfare and the Threat to Global Security. I have only read the introductory, the first two chapters uh, of the book, which give a really good overview of some of the challenges that are involved in fighting a war against guerrilla organizations like the Taliban. But the book is mostly a very technical study of drones. Um, my boyfriend is going to love it. Um, so it's it's a very careful, detailed technical study. And um, I also read a number of articles that, uh, Nicholas, you've written recently on the um, Afghanistan situation. I listened to an, an interview that you've given on that situation. I'll put all of those into the show notes. Welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me. And I'm both happy to be here. And I'll second the message of if people are able to subscribe to uh, both ARC and Aereo, if it's possible, not just one, but both. Yes. Um, every little helps. So first of all, let's, um, let's just dive straight in. Actually, I think a little bit of background to the situation. It might be helpful to just dial back to the Trump presidency for a moment. So um, first of all, one of the things that I am hearing online, um, which I'm extremely skeptical about, is the idea that Trump would have handled this withdrawal better. Tell us about, uh, tell us about how Trump handled the withdrawal from Syria. Um, maybe we can start there. I'm also extremely skeptical that Trump would have handled the Afghanistan withdrawal better. And one reason is because he set this Afghanistan withdrawal in motion when in February 2020, and this had been leading up to negotiations leading up to this point. But in February 2020, the United States and the Taliban struck an agreement for the U.S. to withdraw. And they cut out the Afghan government, who wasn't a part of these negotiations. And that seems to have had a pretty negative effect on both the Afghan military morale and the Afghan government. It convinced a lot of Afghan soldiers that the United States was going to leave them on their own and that their own government wasn't worth supporting. And that also drew the U.S. presence down from 
what uh, Trump had risen in his first year to 14,000. Obama left it around 8,500 U.S. troops, um, 14,000, and had drawn down closer to 10,000, and then put that all the way down to 2,500, and had a truce where the U.S. and Taliban would largely leave each other alone. And during that period, the Taliban set up a lot of its moves that we've seen in the last month or so. So that was one reason. The other reason I'm very skeptical of it is because we've seen Trump do a military withdrawal, or at least attempt it, when he was in office, and that was in Syria. So the United States had, um, under Obama, about a 1,000 troops in Syria, uh, primarily to fight ISIS. Trump first raised that to 2,000, and then a couple years later, announced the withdrawal that surprised just about everybody. When I say everybody, I mean that not only were U.S. allies, especially uh, local fighting groups that were primarily Kurdish, um, that they were surprised and were then scrambling and in many cases felt abandoned, but even the Pentagon was surprised. So uh, Trump as president had not consulted closely with the Pentagon and announced this in public before really working it out with them. So they hadn't made any plans. And the result was chaos. And uh, with a lot of different groups abandoned, with the United States military effectively running rather than trying to do an orderly withdrawal. At the same time, there were questions about perhaps you could say optics. I've heard the argument that uh, you know Trump cared a lot about optics, so he would have at least made the Afghan withdrawal look better. And again, with the Syria withdrawal, um, because the United States was fleeing so quickly, it ended up with optics like Russian soldiers taking over American bases and posting what basically gloating videos of themselves online. Even the Russian state uh, media network, RT, did a bunch of reports of things like Russian soldiers opening fridges and uh, looking at, ooh, look, uh, Coca-Cola and other kind of American products. Also, uh, the Turkey, uh, the Turkish military has long had an issue with uh, Kurdish forces, that there have been uh, Kurdish terrorism in Turkey. And uh, Turkey argued that the Kurdish militias in Syria that were fighting ISIS and were backed by the United States were tied to Kurdish terrorist groups. And um, Turkey wanted to go fight them. And at first, Trump sort of gave them a green light. And then once it was clear that they were being really brutal, uh, including against a variety of civilians, that then he tried to get them to stop. And he publicly demanded that they stop. And he sent his vice president, Mike Pence, to Turkey to get them to stop. And they didn't. And they just kept going. And then after all that, um, oh, and also during this period, there was the Secretary of State and the Secretary of Defense um, and other top U.S. officials going around to various Middle Eastern allies and U.S. partners and trying to reassure them that, no, 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 this is not, you know, like how we, we do business or we're just moving from Syria or, um, you know, just hang on. Uh, we still have your back. And then after all that. Uh, Trump reversed himself and about a thousand U.S. troops stayed in the country. Just their mission shifted from uh, fighting ISIS and peacekeeping to more protecting some oil assets and also still uh, to some extent fighting ISIS. So we saw this haphazard, really poorly handled, bad optics uh, withdrawal in which uh, just about no one there, no local actors took the U.S. seriously, where uh, Russia and the Syrian military gained, where Turkey largely ignored U.S. warnings, where the U.S. screwed over local allies, and in the end, didn't even withdraw. So given that experience, I'm very skeptical that he would have handled the Afghanistan withdrawal better. Thanks, Nicholas. I'm, I'm right in thinking that the Taliban, in any case, reneged on their agreement with Trump? Um, which I guess was predictable. Is that correct? They never really followed it. So in part, uh, the part that they did keep to, which I think was probably the most important part from an American perspective, was they largely left the U.S. alone. There were zero American casualties from hostile fire from that agreement up until now. 
Actually, and still, uh, there still haven't been any. So uh, the Taliban took that as the United States is leaving. If we, you know, break this part of the deal and we start attacking them, then maybe they'll stay or they'll retaliate or it'll fall apart. And they clearly want the U.S. out. The part that they never followed was in that agreement. They also agreed to cut ties to Al Qaeda and they never did that at all. And they're still about as close to them as they always were. And so that kind of condition of, uh, you know, we'll, we'll get out, but it's not just leave us alone until we get out. Also, you have to promise to do this thing that's important to us. They never did that at all. So the United States didn't necessarily have to follow it, but the Taliban were holding to the don't attack Americans part of the deal. Right. Um, before we get on to the actual withdrawal itself, um, maybe it would be helpful to think about um, the the nature of the U.S. president presence in Afghanistan. Um, so um, you have uh, said in an Arkdigi uh, article that I read um, that it's clearly no longer possible at this point, but about that a permanent um, U.S. presence presence in Afghanistan um, would have been not a good option because as you as you quite rightly point out there are no good options um, but might have been the least worst option um, can you talk about a little bit about this talk about how the situation in Afghanistan compares with other countries where the US has a permanent presence um, and also why are uh, you uh, why you made that argument, which um, uh, it's a very unpopular view, which I, uh, which with which I personally agree. Um, so, um, uh, yes, um, say say more about that, please. Sure, uh, it's right. It, it's definitely an, an unpopular view, and you know I've I've known that for a while, and um, the but so I've tried to convince people, but I also understand, I think there are reasonable arguments for withdrawing. Um, you know, so this isn't one where, you know, of course I, I still think that I'm right, but it's not one where I think I'm definitely right. Or the people who are disagreeing are being say, you know, naive or wrong. And so the U S presence yes. in Afghanistan has varied a lot. Um, and in a way this probably should uh, start with 1979 with the Soviet union uh, invading Afghanistan and then the United States, as well as Pakistan, backed the Afghan Mujahideen against the, the Mujahideen rebels against the Soviet Union. And in uh, 1989, the Soviet Union withdraws, and the United States uh, largely leaves and kind of ignores the country and thinks of it as not our problem. And then in uh, 1996, so in the early 90s, the Taliban arises, and um, they win the Afghan civil war. They take control uh, in 1996. They never have total control of the country. There's still parts that are fighting against them, but they are now the government. Um, and I'm, you know, making this short, but then uh, September 11th and prompts the, um, from based in Afghanistan where Al Qaeda was, the U.S. under President George W. Bush demands the Taliban hand over bin Laden and expel Al Qaeda. They won't. And the U.S. invades, overthrows the Taliban, working with some the Northern Alliance, which were some of those uh, anti-Taliban fighters. And then from that period on, the United States uh, is able to overthrow the Taliban government very quickly um, and then works to set up a new one. And U.S. troop levels vary pretty dramatically throughout the conflict. So um, early on, it's mostly in support using things like U.S. air power and intelligence to help take over the country. And it's in the around, um, you know, I can actually get you the uh, exact number. Um, sure. Where uh, the so United States uh, at the start for the first three years is under 10,000 uh, in Afghanistan. 
under Obama, um, the uh, project to set up a Afghan government that would be able to hold the territory on its own and keep Al Qaeda from coming back. Um, then was going poorly. And Obama uh, came into office. He had campaigned on arguing that uh, Iraq was a mistake and Afghanistan was the important war. And then uh, once in office, he surged in Afghanistan um, and U.S. troop levels reached up to about 110,000 in, I think it was 2011. Then he drew down significantly after that. um, And by 2015 um, and 2016, his last two years in office, the U.S. was back below 10,000. Trump came in, raised it to 14,000, but uh, then drew down more in 2020. But for those last years, so with 2014, around 20,000 U.S. troops, and then in particular from 2015 on, when it was never higher than 15,000, the U.S. had a small footprint in the country. And um, I had did the math where in the year before the deal that Trump struck, so before there was a truce, the United States was losing people at a rate of about 1.5 per month which is, of course, quite serious for anybody that knows them personally, but in the grand scheme of war is very low. So I think one of the problems that a lot of people were thinking about with this war is comparing it to ones where the United States had a much bigger military presence. So by contrast, uh, in Vietnam, the U.S. had over 500,000 troops. That's very different than having 15,000. The Also in Vietnam, there was a draft. So a lot of the Americans that were in Vietnam did not volunteer to go there. Whereas in Afghanistan, especially in this later period when the troop presence was low, they were all volunteers, you know, and all willing to go there. And so that part where it was uh, also pretty deadly for Afghans that the um, Afghan over the course of the conflict, uh, the United States lost about 2000 people, um, uh, over 2000 people, but less than three. And the whereas the uh, Afghan military um, estimates are around 60 to 70,000 Afghan military national police uh, casualties and Afghan civilians uh, were also pretty high, perhaps getting into six figures that had died over the course of it. So I don't want to say that this is costless. Um, It's just that the level of commitment that was necessary to keep this kind of uneasy, not exactly stasis, but back and forth with the Taliban controlling some parts, but the Afghan government controlling the central government in Kabul um, and uh, the capital and various other parts of the country was sustainable at that relatively low cost. And a big part of the reason why I argued that it would be a better idea to keep going um, is because one, that the either Taliban relationship with al-Qaeda or the power vacuum that could happen uh, after the U.S. left would be very attractive for transnational terrorists to try to set up, um, shop, and then potentially attack uh, U.S. or U.S. allies, you know, say in Europe or elsewhere. But the other reason is because that the United States, having been in Afghanistan in the 80s, then ignoring it in the 90s, it didn't just go away. It's the world is too connected in this way that we can't really ignore problems and then say, okay, you know, now they'll leave us alone. And September 11th was one lesson of that. Another one was the United States completed its withdrawal from Iraq after the 2003 invasion uh, in 2011, withdrew all military forces. And then ISIS arose in Syria, took over a lot of territory in Iraq, threatened the central government in Iraq in 2014, and then the U.S. re-intervened there and now has about 5,000 troops there. So we have these two situations where the U.S. left, said, okay, we're done with it, and then shortly after something happened and the U.S. ended back in. So I've been thinking about this not only as what can the U.S. do that would stop the Taliban from winning. It's not like the U.S. could win, and that's the 
one of the other mistakes, kind of the big misconceptions I think a lot of people have with this of the Americans, and it's not just Americans, but especially Americans, tend to think of war as there's the good war, which is World War II. And that's one where, you know, they start it and they're bad guys and we go and we push back hard and, you know, we have to sacrifice, but we win. We get this unconditional surrender. It's a very decisive victory. Then we have a parade and we're done. But we also weren't totally done in that, like you mentioned, the U.S. still has, or referenced, uh, the U.S. still has troops in Germany and Japan and South Korea. But that's not a good analogy for Afghanistan, because in Afghanistan, there was combat ongoing, and that wasn't the case in those other U.S. occupations. But also, the United States has troops in something I don't think most people know, um, has troop deployments in over 22 African countries, or sorry, at least 22 African countries. I say over because that's the officially acknowledged number, and it's probably more than that. And those are low presence, um, low U.S. presence. They're doing things like training local forces and helping provide them with intelligence, um, but still has this presence in all these different countries, and it's a very low level. So it's not something like the bad war, Vietnam, where the U.S. sends more and more and more people and has a whole bunch of deaths and doesn't accomplish its goals. Whereas in Afghanistan, there was one way to think of the goal as this permanent victory where the Afghan government and military stand entirely on their own and keep their country from becoming a home to transnational terrorists. And that was never really in the cards. But another way to think about it is, while the U.S. wasn't winning, the Taliban wasn't winning either. And that both for the security reasons and also for all the humanitarian reasons, you know, simple things like girls being able to go to school without facing violence. I thought for both those reasons combined that it was worth sustaining that indefinitely, though I was clear eyed that it was not something that was going to be victory around the corner, which is how a lot of American politicians sold it. Mm, mm. Yeah, I mean, I I agree with you mostly for the humanitarian reasons that I think that it was a twenty years of giving at least some Afghans um, the option of a of a freer life, especially the women. Um, and it feels to me as though this withdrawal is just abandoning the Afghan women to their fate. And I mean, I understand that it's first of all it's massively unpopular in in electoral terms in the US and the US is a democracy and of course um voters should have a say uh in what's going on with the US troops and also uh you know it's not uh, there's no quick fix there's no easy way to get the afghans to a point where they're able to hold off the taliban on their own and that does involve a very long-term commitment. But it feels as though people were given a taste of a, just a slightly better life, just not being, um, you know, sex slaves and um, imprisoned and wearing burqas and things from age 12 onwards, uh, especially the women. Um, and that's just been sort of, that's being snatched away from them now, which is my concern. I think that part's really sad. I, I don't, there's sort of no way around it that the, you know, I, I used girls going to school as an example, and there were incidents of uh, things, say, of uh, fundamentalists in Afghanistan who opposed that, physically attacking girls, throwing acid in their faces that left permanent scarring, and just for going to school. Um, and the, you use the term sex slaves, and that is, I think, a, an accurate way to describe it. You know, it's something obviously we'd be uncomfortable with, or, I um, mean, be careful if you don't want to accuse somebody of that. That's not the case, but it pretty much is. And there are people who, I'll just give you one example of something that stuck with me of in this withdrawal that uh, the day after Kabul fell, 
I saw footage of a store that sold wedding dresses painting over its windows. That um, the pictures of advertisements in um, what we, uh, you know, many in the West would probably consider quite modest wedding dresses, but nevertheless, wedding dresses um, and uh, the women with their hair uncovered and wearing makeup, uh, you know, and smiling, like you see in an advertisement, and um, that is a small part, you know, a lot of things would be worse of what's going to happen to Afghan civilians and especially women and girls and also LGBT people um, that there had been, for example, stonings uh, of homosexuals that uh, a small thing of the, or sorry, just with with the wedding thing, it's just, you know, small, but it is symbolic of a larger change that is already underway and will probably consolidate itself when the U S leaves. Uh, what do you what do you feel about and what's your explanation for um, the evacuation flights being uh, mostly full of exclusively men? Um, is that because the men are in the most immediate danger because anybody who is uh, seen to have collaborated with the U.S. is likely to be shot? Or do you do you think it's um, are you disturbed by the fact that it's mostly men who are being evacuated? Um, do you have any thoughts on that? So a little, yes. And um, because that's at least, you know, the, I don't think the U.S. has released demographic numbers on who they've taken out, but I've seen pictures and it does look to be overwhelmingly men, especially younger men. Um, I think part of it might be who had worked with the U.S., you know, who would be more likely in um, serving in military police, uh, military or police that would now be in danger. It's probably, you know, mostly younger, middle-aged men, but also a big part of it. And, you know, this is where say it's pretty negative is who can get through to the airport. So there are, once the, uh, once Kabul fell, things fell apart pretty quickly. And there was a rush to the airport because the United States still controlled the airport and uh, was flying people out of it. And there have, um, I don't have a good sense of how many people are around it, um, that there's, you know, I've only seen these spotty photos. I don't think anybody totally knows how many are around it. Well, the U S government might, because aerial surveillance from, uh, drones in particular can take wide angle photographs and, um, could give them, you know, perhaps a good count of it, but nothing that I know of publicly. But there are these crowds, and who would who would go into that crowd or try to fight their way through for the uncertain chance of getting into the airport? Well, single young men that I know, you know, this is not a perfect analogy, of course, but I've been in some pretty dense uh, crowds at various times or um, things, you know, I don't know, somewhat raucous and uh, pushed my way through and even something, you know, not analogous, like say, I don't know, a concert um, and push my way through. And I have two little kids and I wouldn't, you know, push my way through a mosh pit with my five-year-old. And that is not nearly as dangerous as the area surrounding the um, Afghan, uh, surrounding the Kabul airport. Um, so similar thing for women. Um, I could, you know, easily see it'd be quite logical to be afraid of going through um, people with children, um, certainly elderly or frail people, uh, to not have the wherewithal or want to take the risk to go through. There are some rumors which I can't totally confirm, but um, I do think makes uh, a lot of sense enough that I would, you know, say with the caveat that I still think these are rumors, but say it of where uh, people have been charging kind of local toughs have been charging people to get them through the crowd. So people with money, you know, can pay a fee and some uh, tough guys will, you know, push people out of the way and probably break a couple ribs along the way to get them to the front. Uh, but overall, that's my guess of what, why we're seeing so many young men on the ones being evacuated. Uh, there are still questions in my mind. So um, you wouldn't push through a mosh pit with your four-year-old, but um, you might take your four-year-old if it, if you felt it was your one chance of escaping to the safety of the West. 
like those people who I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of also that, uh, photograph that's gone round the world now of the people handing over their baby to the U.S. soldiers over the, over the wall. I'm just surprised there aren't more people, um, fleeing with their, with their wives or sisters, mothers, etc., or attempting to. Uh, th- that baby photo, right. Uh, handing the baby off really stuck me to, uh, stuck, struck with me too. Uh, the, you know, of thinking of say how desperate somebody might be, um, you know, must be to uh, be w- willing to give up their child. And um, one of them, at least one of those cases was somebody who their kid needed medical care and then um, got it and then was handed back. But I've also seen a number of photos of uh, American and European and other foreign troops cradling babies on some of those flights out. Um, there were mm-hmm. uh, at least three women who have given birth uh, on transports uh, on the way out. So there is some degree of prioritization or effort to get uh, pregnant women or say people with young kids through. I think that happened more in the beginning though, uh, before it became uh, just more chaos and more of a rush and something that both the US had uh, less control of and surrounding the airport, very little control at this point. Um, and also where the Taliban have set up some checkpoints on the way to the airport presumably to look for people that they don't want to let out. Yeah, I mean I imagine if I were uh if I were an Afghan married Afghan woman for example um or um I would I I guess if he was about to be shot I would rather my husband rush off to the airport um without me if necessary if that was the only way to get him out but I also think that a lot of women are going to be in a very vulnerable position if they're in even more vulnerable position if the male members of their household have left and they are left there in Afghanistan completely unprotected. Mm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Most likely. Although also, if you want to, the the flip part to that is um, say, if, you know, afraid your husband's going to be shot if he doesn't get out of the country, well, also could be uh, quite afraid that your husband would be shot if he tries to go to the airport and he shows his face in such a public yeah. place that unless he gets through pretty quickly, um, that he could find himself risking exposure, going out and not getting into the airport at all. And then just the effort itself gets him killed. And I'm sure different people are making these different calculations and they're doing it largely in the dark. You know, we're, we're speculating here on the different possibilities and all of these must be considerations for people involved. And, um, I have no idea how somebody would make that call. You know, there's so much uncertainty to it. They can't know, which just whichever risk they take, whichever thing they're more afraid of. But I think you're right that uh, if, say, the husband leaves and the wife is left on her own, that she would be at considerable risk or at least more risk than uh, if he was still there. Although, then again, if it, this person, the man in question, was somebody who was um, had worked closely with the United States and was now being hunted by the Taliban because, among other things, the Afghan government had pretty good records of things like who were Afghan special operations forces that were partnering closely with the United States. And the Taliban has a lot of that now. So they will be probably hunting people down or trying to find some of these people mm-hmm. um, just mm-hmm. as a you know logical piece of strategy, not just revenge, but also that those are the people most likely to take up armed resistance against them. And so they'll try to eliminate a lot of those. And if, say, a, a woman was married to one of those soldiers, she might be in a lot of trouble as well. Um. I, I, I do want to go back to the details of the withdrawal, but um, first of all, I wanted to ask you about 
the nature of the connections between the Taliban and al-Qaeda because um, these are not identical associations and the Taliban are seem more concerned about running Afghanistan the way that they want to run it, which of course is kind of horrifying to me. But uh, whereas al-Qaeda are more fighting, uh, you know, fighting a, a generalized and international campaign against the West and against even westernized parts of the Muslim world. Al-Qaeda's objective is is an international caliphate, whereas perhaps the Taliban's objective is a domestic caliphate in Afghanistan. Um, sorry, that's a very probably a very crude way of looking at it. But uh, yeah, could you say more about the 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 connections between them and um, the differences and what's happening there? So I think you said it pretty well, and that also that it is a important distinction. A lot of people blur the two, and they are definitely separate groups. Uh, the uh, Taliban is uh, so local, primarily, um, almost entirely, but uh, interested, you know, primarily interested in governing Afghanistan and running the place and imposing a, a fundamentalist, really strict uh, version of Islam on the population, one that is considerably stricter than the vast majority of Muslims in the world. And they have... Uh, they were created in the 90s in part with uh, help from Pakistani intelligence who wanted a Muslim government in Afghanistan to create what they called strategic depth with India. That uh, where, you know, it's from their perspective, having a, a Muslim government behind them meant that they felt more, conf- uh, more confident uh, putting mo- most of their military resources on their southern border to uh, face off against India. And the Taliban and al-Qaeda relationship began um, in part because some of the people who became the Taliban and also some of the people who ended up fighting against the Taliban were uh, Mujahideen in the 1980s. And so they had, you know, some of them had training from um, or, you know, got weapons from Americans or Pakistanis, but uh, overall that they had kind of fought together somewhat. And this included a few uh, foreign fighters where al-Qaeda's origin um, is that the uh, leading members had are, are almost a foreign veterans of the Afghan war that throughout the 80s, they answered this global call to jihad to come to Afghanistan and fight off the Soviet invaders, which is a really classic example of defensive jihad. You have a, a non-Muslim army invading a Muslim country, so go help them fight back. Um, and this was mm-hmm. uh, throughout the West, say in the United States, for example, thought of as very positive. You know, the uh, Mujahideen were thought of as, uh, you know, good freedom fighters, ones that you want to support. And so they kept up some of this relationship of uh, bin Laden and uh, Ayman al-Zawari, who's Egyptian, um, and uh, uh, Abdulaziz, who is, uh, or sorry, Azam, um, who is Palestinian, was a Palestinian cleric, or kind of the three founders. And uh, the Taliban and al-Qaeda had a, a pretty close relationship throughout most of the later 90s, uh, where al-Qaeda set up uh, training camps in Afghanistan. And uh, this was after... Uh, bin Laden had been kicked out of uh, Saudi Arabia and then also driven out of Sudan. And he ends up uh, back in Afghanistan and he and the Taliban um, get along pretty well, in part because he and Taliban leaders have a similar vision of, uh, if not necessarily what their main priorities are politically, a similar vision of this kind of fundamentalist Sunni Islam. And one of the most noteworthy parts about this, about their uh, close relationship, is that shortly before September 11th, meaning like within a week uh, before, a couple days before, there is a leader of uh, an Afghan warlord, um, one who had been opposed to the Taliban, 
who ends up dead, you know, in an area that the Taliban doesn't control. And um, this was widely believed to be uh, done by al-Qaeda operatives, that they were, you know, quite, uh, some of their best ones were quite good fighters. Um, and they... Uh, killed this guy to, uh, just, again, believed to be um, almost like a preemptive uh, favor to the Taliban in exchange for this terrorist attack against the United States is going to happen. And then there, you know, might be coming back down on you. So, and even though we agree in a similar vision, you want to run Afghanistan. Um, and Al-Qaeda's goal, uh, I think you're right to call it transnational. Um, I'd say their, their primary grievance is with um, apostate regimes in Muslim-majority countries. So think uh, who they really hate are the governments of Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Jordan, um, as well as uh, Israel, of course, uh, India now, uh, definitely on the list. Um, and those countries, the bin Laden's kind of big innovation to uh, international jihadism was in this idea that uh, called the near enemy and far enemy, where um, basically, we can't beat the Saudis. We can't overthrow the Saudi royal family or the Egyptian military or whoever, as long as they're backed by the United States. So we have to take the fight to the United States and get them to back off. And then we can try to take over these countries and then implement this vision, this kind of fundamentalist religious vision. So after September 11th, the United States and um, a lot of uh, other countries, you know, pretty much the whole world is supportive of the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan. The only two governments that say something negative about it that are outwardly opposed to it um, are uh, Iraq under Saddam Hussein and uh, North Korea. And mm -hmm. the United States invades, throws, um, overthrows the Taliban. Um, Al Qaeda is running, um, where. Uh, they end up, a lot of them, including bin Laden, are, are able to flee to uh, Pakistan and spread out to various areas around the world, or as we now know from bin Laden, stay in uh, Pakistan and hide. And the uh, at that point, so uh, where they are now is they still have this kind of working relationship, but people tend to blur them into a single organization, and they're not. Um, Al-Qaeda is very much internationally minded. Um, in a way, you can think of them as a almost globalized resistance against the U.S.-led international order, especially with the, how much that U.S.-led international order has imposed upon, you know, especially in their view, um, has imposed upon the U.S. military and others, um, and the existence of Israel, how much it has imposed upon the uh, Muslim world, and uh, whereas the Taliban is focused domestically. So as best I can tell, they still have a working relationship. Um, Al-Qaeda will probably find it more attractive to uh, a more attractive environment in, in Afghanistan to set up. But also the Taliban has a pretty big incentive to not have a large international terrorist attack launched from their territory because they just had to fight for 20 years and they lost a lot of people along the way. And while obviously they're going to be excited by their victory, they also know that they can be overthrown relatively easily. So while they can't totally control Al-Qaeda, they also probably don't really want um, Al-Qaeda to set up shop there and then go launch some big attack against, you know, the U.S. or, say, France um, or Canada or any of those others, because that could bring the pressure right back down on them. And I'm not totally sure how they will be able to navigate that relationship. Um, the, that's one of those things we're just going to have to watch and see but they do still have that fairly close relationship. Yeah, um, a, a kind of, I guess this is a somewhat related question. Um, I, I would like to preface this by saying that I don't buy the idea that I hear uh, voiced uh, at least quite a lot in 
Twitter circles occasionally from my real life friends that we shouldn't be intervening here because the the kind of Taliban esque regime is part of people's local culture um, because there obviously there haven't been free and fair elections and this is a um, a government who are taking power and retaining power through coercion and I don't believe in that something can be considered legitimately the culture if uh, if it can only be sustained through through threats and violence and coercion um, but um to what extent um is there to what extent do you think the Taliban are assisted by um local sympathizers um who might be more sympathetic to the Taliban because they've experienced for example um drone raids in their in their area particularly in the countryside uh or because of the um um the widespread corruption within the Afghan government I think you're right to, you know, not to reject those arguments of basically, this is what the Afghans are, this is what they want, this is their culture. The reason why is it's part of the culture, but there are also a lot of other parts. Afghanistan is a multi-ethnic, pretty diverse society. There is no one group, no one ethnic or like ethno-religious group or tribal group that is a majority of the country. Uh, that's one of the reasons why um, elections were never able to produce a really stable government, it always ended up with power sharing agreements between uh, people who had won maybe 40 something percent of the vote. So they never, you know, got that. I'm, I, right, I'm also not comfortable with, with the idea that the, you know, people like this is just what all of them are. That's, you know, so overly simplistic and kind of stereotypical. Mm -hmm. There is clearly a mm -hmm. significant part of um, at both Afghans and you could say Afghan culture that, um, wants a fundamentalist religious vision. Um, there's also a part which you were alluding to that uh, sees the Taliban as just sort of the alternative. So if the Afghan government is corrupt or uh, if anybody was um, personally at all connected to, say, some violence either from the Afghan government or from the United States or other international countries, with drone strikes being an example, that that could be a reason why they turn to them as, uh, you know, I don't like... Uh, Okay, like, you know, I, I don't like you, but I don't like them either. And, you know, you're the alternative of this will be a different country. But um, an example of when ISIS was um, or, you know, uh, Islamic State, ISIL, whatever you call them, um, Daesh, uh, was going through Iraq, that there was one line that I heard. This was from a um, U.S. military liaison that had met with a Sunni tribal leader and uh, where this is uh, Iraq as a, a Shia Arab dominated government, which is about 60 percent of the population. So, um, you know, can win elections and. A dominated government and uh, was asked, you know, the American asked uh, this uh, Iraqi, um, why would you guys sort of let let ISIS come through here? And uh, his response was, well, it's true that, uh, you know, ISIS kills us, but the Shia kill us and rape our women. So what do you want us to do? And that's something where I don't want to say that mm -hmm. that was like, oh, that is, of course, how the whole war worked. You know, that'd be grossly oversimplistic. But having this perspective of where he was saying, as you know, basically, we have two really bad options. And we go with at the moment, you know, we're changing because we really hate the current one. And maybe this one won't be quite as bad and fighting them would be hard. And I think that goes for a lot of the stuff with the Taliban that it can't you can't call it something that all Afghans want, because clearly a lot of Afghans wanted the. Uh, experience of the last 20 years more. Um, I think it's pretty safe to say a lot of women uh, would have thought that the last 20 years were better than Taliban rule. 
At the same time, you have some Afghans, mm. and I don't have good numbers. And, you know, it's not like we have good public opinion polls on this question. There are clearly some Afghans who genuinely like the Taliban, other ones that are kind of afraid of them um, and will put up with them. And that goes probably for a lot of the Taliban success in retaking the country is that a remarkable thing is how little violence there was, how little bloodshed there was. And it's because they have evidently spent the last year or so, year and a half, since the uh, February 2020 deal with the U.S., setting up various negotiations where um, they got local community leaders and uh, also local forces, um, so meaning uh, Afghan military or police that were stationed, especially in more rural provinces, to surrender to them, to kind of hand over things to them. And, uh, you know, it's hard to know specifically what the leverage was or, you know, what the type of agreement was, how much of it was going into places and people saying, oh, you know, thank God you're here. We like you so much better than uh, the Afghan government and, you know, the Americans. Um, or how much of it was that the Taliban went in and said, hey, you all saw how the Americans are leaving, right? So we'll basically give you two choices. Either you surrender to us when we say it's time, or we're going to come in here and kill you. And the and without the United States there, most Afghans would probably think, okay, that threat is really serious. I need to take that really seriously. And yeah. what are the options? What are the better options? Well, you know, if you surrender, and especially if you weren't actively fighting them, if you were just kind of caught in the middle, if you surrender, then maybe you survive and, you know, maybe you can do okay, especially, say, men um, and, you know, more powerful men within these communities. Mm, mm, yeah. Um, I think that's, I just want to clarify a little bit kind of the the morality of this because, um, I'm, I mean, I'm deeply opposed to coercion. So even if 90% of Afghans wanted to, 90% of women wanted to wear burqa, which I think there's no reason to believe, um, it would still be wrong to force the other 10%, for example. Um, and, uh, you know, I, um, as you might know, I spent my childhood in, uh, a large part of my childhood in Pakistan. Um, and I remember there was certainly a time where Pakistan was much more liberal and free. Um, and Afghanistan was much more liberal and free during that period. Uh, so, yeah, I, I just wanted to add that in case it's kind of unclear to anybody. Um, I don't at all take a culturally relativist view on this. Um, during the time when Pakistan was very liberal, there were still women who were in fully, um, who were living, um, fully secluded and wearing full niqab, etc. And of course, in a liberal society, you can also do that, but not vice versa. Let's, um, and talk a little bit more about the withdrawal. So given that Trump already came to that agreement with the um, Taliban, um, was it uh, back in back in May that he came to the agreement? February. February, right. And it was withdrawal by May that he promised, that Trump promised. Um, May 1st, uh, 31st, I think, yes. Right. Um, given that the Americans were already committed to withdrawing, um, and Biden decided to uphold, um, you know, Trump's, uh, more or less Trump's withdrawal plan. Um, why, why couldn't, um, the people working with the Americans have been got out sooner? What were the, what were the reasons why this withdrawal? I don't want to call it, a, I mean, clearly as a shambles, but I don't know how, to what extent that shambles was preventable. Um, and to what extent it was inevitable. Um, so um, maybe you could say a bit more about that. So I, 
I think it's a combination of the two. And of course, at some level, when you're talking about alternative history, it gets really hard. Uh, I've been pretty critical of the way that the United States handled the withdrawal, at least at the beginning. And primarily, the reason why what appears to be the big mistake is that the U.S. government was making its plans largely based on the assumption that the Afghan military and government would hold out for a while, so that there would be a a long period of time um, where originally the U.S. was saying one to two years, uh, then had it down to 90 days, but at least a period of months. Um, And part of the reason why I I would like to know more, I don't know how much we'll ever really find this out, but of these discussions, you know, where in, so the U.S. government needs to do a, uh, at least internal review of this, because how much did U.S. intelligence say things like, we think there's a pretty high probability that the government collapses quickly, or, you know, where our sources are telling us that a lot of these, especially rural communities have already cut deals with the Taliban. um, And, you know, maybe you should adjust your plans. Or how much did intelligence lay things out as saying, here are a whole bunch of different scenarios and we don't know. And then it was policymakers who said, okay, I think we think they're going to hold out for a while. Part of the reason why I think that was such a big mistake is when you stop and think about it of under those conditions, why did you expect somebody to fight? So here, the United States cuts the uh, is heavily supporting the Afghan military. They are dependent upon the United States in particular. Uh, they're dependent on um, U.S. air power. Uh, U.S. intelligence um, and logistics, kind of, you know, getting them stuff and also uh, equipment maintenance of keeping the things that the U.S. gave them, the uh, more advanced equipment in good shape. And in February 2020, the U.S., by making this deal and the Afghan government is not a part of it, is about as big a vote of no confidence as you could possibly get. The U.S. pulls back and isn't doing uh, combat anymore. The U.S. contractors that are doing this uh, equipment maintenance withdraw. So uh, the Afghans can't even use the fancier stuff that the U.S. gave them or at least have to, you know, greatly limited. Um, And then they're just expecting that. And then saying, you know, even publicly, we think the, you know, Afghan government and military is going to fall. Like the Taliban are going to win. You know, maybe it's a year or two or maybe it's a few months, but they're definitely going to win. And then they expected a bunch of Afghans to say, okay, you think I'm going to lose and you know that uh, I need your help and you're not helping me. And why would I fight? Like, why, what would be the point of, okay, like, we'll hang on for three months to sort of do you a favor and risk our own lives expecting to lose? Uh, why, you know, why would people do that? And so um, at the very least, I would love to find out, I don't know if I ever will, but I would love to find out if that was raised as a serious question in some of these discussions. And if so, who shot it down? The That said, um, the... Things were probably always headed for something like this, that there were ways, I think, to make it better. You know, you brought up one that um, I think maybe would have made things better, which was doing some evacuations or starting it kind of slowly or doing it in advance. The argument that the Biden administration, I think the president himself also said this, the argument they've made for why they didn't do that was because the um, they were afraid that that would cause a panic, that it would sort of set off something like what we're seeing now. Um, and in particular, the mm-hmm. Afghan president, uh, President Ghani, had implored the United States not to do it because he said um, he was telling the U.S. that he was, you know, going to fight and going to stick it out and we can totally do it. Um, you know, we, we really want it. And all the while, we now know he was planning his exit and, you know, he fled almost right away. And uh, so he played the United States and probably in part, uh, the U.S. uh, top people were letting themselves get played. You know, they wanted to believe. And so they 
uh, whether entirely, you know, how much it was trusting Ghani and how much was their own uh, assessment of it, I don't know. But they seem to have come to the conclusion that doing some of those evacuations would have signaled to everybody, this is happening now, you know, the US is leaving, the government's about to fall. Uh, that would have created the same sort of panic and chaos, and it just would have done it at a less opportune time. That said, probably some of this could have been done more behind the scenes. Uh, one uh, pretty clear way, so something like uh, instead of maybe not doing a bunch of evacuation flights, but taking some of those Afghans, you know, think uh, translators and interpreters and special operations forces, others that work closely with the U.S. and would then be targets. Maybe if there are some that are far from Kabul, move them to the city um, that, mm. you know, where they're not running away from Afghanistan, but they are in closer access to the airport. Um, another one is the uh, SIVs, special immigrant visas that uh, the United States was uh, making for people who have uh, aided the U.S., um, and the Trump administration um, significantly curtailed those. They processed uh, very few um, in 2020, um, in large part because uh, Trump's speechwriter, uh, Stephen Miller, who was also kind of de facto uh, immigration policy advisor, was uh, someone arguing uh, very strongly against letting Afghans into the country for uh, reasons that I think amount to uh, basically not much more than racism and uh, not wanting, you know, say them to come in and had various people that he was uh, working with or that he was close with try to muck up the process at different levels. And then the Biden administration had tried to clear some of that backlog, but didn't clear a lot of it. And there were many more people who were trying to get it. So that paperwork even going through sooner would have helped. Uh, the, but a lot of them, I've heard a lot, you know, different commentators, so there's media, some politicians, and of course, a lot of people on Twitter who are making what sound to me to be really overly simplistic kind of uh, wishful thinking, you know, uh, armchair generals of, you know, what I would have done. Um, and an example of this. Uh, so, you know, one is when would the panic have started? When would the Afghan military have collapsed? And, you know, if you do it earlier, nobody really knows the answer to that. Probably sooner mm -hmm. than it did now, but, um, you know, no one knows entirely. Uh, and one that I've seen a lot is with the United States closing uh, Bagram Air Base, which is uh, about, you know, could have been a second runway to take people out. And yet the problem with that one is it's about 40 miles from Kabul. It's in a pretty remote area. The people who, most of the people who need to get out are in Kabul um, and maybe in a few other cities. And so uh, the United States, if they were going to evacuate people via Bagram, then they would have needed to get people there. And getting people there would have meant they needed to secure 40 miles worth of roads from things like IEDs, you know, improvised uh, explosive devices, and potentially ambushes, and not just Taliban, uh, and also various Taliban checkpoints, but not just Taliban, either groups like, say, ISIS or others that have some presence in the country, or just thugs that are trying to shake people down, you know, try to shake desperate people down. And to do that would have required a lot of troops, way more than the United States had. Was the United States going to rely on the Afghan military to do that? That would have been a bad idea. Was the U.S. going to put tens of thousands of troops back into the country? That's the opposite of withdrawal. Um, was the U.S. just going to say, we're going to hang out here and you can risk it? Uh, was the U.S. going to start maybe doing flights out of that airport and bombing Taliban positions? That would have broken the truce and then likely led to Taliban attacks on Americans and others. So that's just a, a good example of where, sure, it sounds good of, hey, wouldn't it be great if there was this second runway? And when you actually look into the logistics of what that would require to really get people out of it, it becomes much more complicated. So the I am pretty darn critical of how the Biden administration handled it, especially the really poor intelligence assessment and the way that they were saying. So uh, Biden, the top military officer in the United States, uh, General Mark Milley, who's the chair of the Joint Chiefs, 
were saying as recently as July that things like, no, I don't think the Afghan military collapsing is inevitable. They've got 300,000 people and all this fancy equipment. And Taliban only have 75,000. No, like we really think they can hold out. And either they thought that and they were badly wrong, um, or they didn't totally think that. And so then they were just kind of, you know, BSing people in the public. And that is bad on its own also. Um, but all that combined, so I'm quite critical of that. Uh, but I do think the U.S. has improvised pretty well in that the U.S. military has now flown more people out of Kabul after the capital there fell, um, decently more than it flew out of Saigon in Vietnam uh, after that capital fell. And they have, you know, trying to put tons of people like into the back of cargo planes, um, you know, just trying to get them out. So have gotten a lot out, a lot. And there's also, you know, both... Uh, quite sad that it is just tragic and um, is, uh, you know, bothering me is that the U.S. will also end up leaving quite a few people behind. Um, what I don't know and what I, what I try to compare this to is what is the best possible way this could have gone? And I'm mostly left with a little better, but probably not that much. That I, I think most of it is uh, fantasies and by people at some level processing that, you know, maybe some people who weren't paying that much attention to Afghanistan and others who are mostly what they're really uh, arguing, even though they don't say it this way, what they're really arguing is that the U.S. should not have withdrawn in the first place. They're making kind of a version of my, um, you know, indefinite presence argument. Because once the U.S. is going to withdraw, and especially once uh, the U.S. is committed to withdrawing and has this truce with the Taliban, not withdrawing would have required escalation. It would have meant uh, the United States would have had to put um, I'd say, you know, at least 10, maybe as many, you know, as 15 or 20,000 uh, troops back in engaged in uh, some pretty intense combat just to get back to that pre-February 2020 deal status quo or something like it. And so every alternative was bad. It, it was going bad pretty much every way, though it could have been better, but it was going bad. Mm. I'd like to run to kind of viewpoints by you and get your perspective on them to, in a sense, opposite viewpoints. Um, first of all, um, you talked about uh, um, a reluctance to issue more visas for Afghans, which was based on racism. Um, and I think this was, uh, um, I mean, right now, obviously, I feel no, no reluctance at all. But I think this was a view that in the past, I sympathize with more. I've, I've kind of moved away from that view over the past five to 10 uh, years, um, which is a sort of uh, a fear of importing um, too many people who don't share our um, Western, Western quote unquote values or universal liberal humanist values as I prefer to think of them. Um, and who will, may therefore, um, change the, the, restrict the freedoms of Westerners or change the character of the West or also, uh, potentially be terrorists. So I used to be more convinced by this argument that there should be a serious vetting of immigrants from um, countries with a more totalitarian countries, especially totalitarian Islamic countries, because of those kinds of fears in the UK, in the US, much less so because uh, in the US, most people seem to integrate well within at least one generation. Um, in the UK, that's really not the case. Um, or it's, it's far less the case. I have moved, I have moved away from that viewpoint because, um, I think that that kind of um, 
fear is a very poor counselor in this regard. Um, and, um, I've moved much, uh, much closer towards a kind of a more open borders, uh, stance because I think that the world is inevitably interconnected. But, First of all, I, I'd like to hear your view on that that idea, and then I'm going to kind of ask for your view on the sort of opposite stance. Sure. Um, the first, uh, just the the person, I, what I'm saying, uh, motivated by racism in that context, I meant explicitly Stephen Miller, so not mm, say everybody mm, who yes, yes, uh, agrees on that. And I think there's more than enough evidence that uh, that man in particular um, is largely motivated. Oh by yeah, him. I. I, I, I agree with you, but um, um, I think for the that other one, though, also the, these uh, fears are, yeah. Right. But both, the, so yeah, I'll take go, the go culture, the culture one and the terrorism one uh, separately, where the, at least in this instance, uh, I don't think the cultural one applies all that much because the, we're talking about who was trying to get out of Afghanistan and who would the U.S. take out of Afghanistan. It was people who were more interested in uh, things like uh, individual freedom and democracy and, um, you know, the type of liberal humanist values that you talked about, because it would be both people who worked with the United States and with other foreign forces, you know, say NATO forces, to try to bring that about in their country. It was also people who would fear reprisal from the Taliban. If you think there are people who are really looking forward to a uh, fundamentalist religious um fundamentalist Muslim, um, you know, imposed on society imposed on those who don't want it. If that sounds good to them, well, Afghanistan is turning into that. So um, they are less likely the ones that are leaving that, you know, there's almost a self-selection process in who would want to leave Afghanistan. Now it's mostly people who preferred those values of society in the last 20 years and would like to go to a place that experiences them rather than see Afghanistan go back to the place it was in the late nineties. On the uh, of course, one. there may be just, uh, may I just interject mm -hmm. for a moment? Because sure. of course, there may also be people who want to leave because the economy is about to collapse. So they may not, they may not be motivated by that. I mean, mm -hmm. That, that's right, absolutely. Also and there are others who, um, it could be, or uh, economy or some degree, maybe they were uh, making, right, I, I don't want to make them, you know, it's not overly positive where, you know, it's a mixed population, but uh, some where economy about to collapse, or also could be some who are basically war profiteers, you know, who were, um, or, uh, who are making their money, making money off uh, government grift, you know, were in some way corrupt government officials who, uh, you know, might not have any particular values beyond trying to make themselves a lot more money. So there'll be some of that too. Uh, right. It's don't want to paint the vision that every single person who's trying to get out of Afghanistan is basically this ideal Democrat, um, you know, small D. Mm -hmm. uh, but at least, you know, say some degree of it, but in terms of transforming any society's culture, we're not talking about a lot of people that the uh, so estimates of how many of the U.S. has flown out is something I think already in the range of like maybe 60, 70,000. Um, if we just uh, I don't think it'll get this high, but just imagine that that goes up to, say, I don't know, 250,000. Um, the United States has 330 Nothing. million people. Mm -hmm. Not all of those, uh, you know, say 250,000, which, again, is higher than it'll probably be. Um, are, would go to the United States. We're talking about, you know, say few thousands here and there, and it's kind of drop in the bucket. They're not going to transform the culture of any country they go to. Yeah, just to be clear, I have sort of moved away from um, the, the sympathy with this kind of viewpoint, um, but it was certainly something that convinced me some years ago. Um, yeah, go ahead. Right. No, I think there is... Um, 
I, I think it would be you know, sort of naive or inaccurate to say that uh, if a massive foreign population, you know, became uh, suddenly came into a country and became a large percentage of that country's population, that it would transform things in some way. Uh, just an example of this is. Uh, the number of people who have fled Syria and ended up in Lebanon or Jordan uh, in particular have uh, come up to, I think, uh, Syrian refugees made it to something like maybe 20-something percent of the whole Lebanese population. Um, and while that wouldn't be, mm. you know, maybe culturally transformative since Lebanon and Syria are our neighbors and were uh, both um, French colonies after World War One, and so, um, you know, would have say, those similarities, it's... Uh, it would be inaccurate to say that if a large foreign population suddenly shows up in a country that they would have no effect. You know, of course, they'd have some effect, uh, whether, you know, that effect, say, would be inherently bad or whether one would cite it as if they're negatives, like for the Syrians, Lebanese, it's because they are refugees they're in refugee camps. They kind of need to be taken care of or uh, to some degree, it's, you know, hard to integrate them to the population. And Lebanon and, and Jordan have had a lot of trouble with that um, as a result. You know, so that. Uh, in part, you know, being, say, impoverished as most people who are on the run are. On the terrorism question, the that's one I have to say I'm not, I'm not all that uh, afraid of. And this is one where uh, I, this is my terrorism in my main area of focus and um, one where, you know, I, I tend to do something that a lot of national security analysts do, which is uh, we focus a lot on what's called uh, low probability, high impact events, meaning things that are unlikely, but because they would be such a big deal if they happened, we take them very seriously. The obvious example here, the clearest example is nuclear war. You know, it's very, very unlikely, but it'd be such a big deal that we should really work to try to stop it. You know, if it's a you know, 0.1% chance, that's, oh, that's very high. You know, that's that's too risky. Like, would you, 0.1% is one out of a thousand. Uh, if one out of every a thousand planes fell out of the sky, how what would you fly? If it was one out of a hundred, would you get on a plane? I think probably I wouldn't. You know, I mean, it's much lower than that. Uh, but so I would be worried about if I thought, say, a even if it was low probability. But the the type, so we'd have to think of what type of person could potentially, say, be a terrorist threat in the United States. And if it is something like, well, some of these people might be angry or, uh, you know, maybe they live here for a little while and they feel alienated and then their kids grow up and their kids are angry. And Maybe, but that is about the same really small chance for just about everybody um, that the, for example, just looking at the United States of in the uh, last decade or so of Americans who have been killed by terrorist violence, about 70 something percent of them have been killed by uh, far right extremist kind of white nationalist and anti-government violence and about 20 something percent by jihadist violence. And that doesn't mean that jihadist violence, and then another like maybe think it's three or four percent by far left extremist violence. And the uh, so it doesn't mean you say, you know, jihadism is not a threat. It just means that terrorists come from, uh, you know, angry, angry people who grow up and then want to be violent come from all different types. Um, I don't have any particular reason to think that uh, people who are fleeing Afghanistan are more likely in 20 years or in 30 years, say, to have a kid who then is violent than just about anybody else. I was going to say, in any case, um, people are often radicalized online. So, um, you know, having people within the national borders is not even a factor in many cases. Um, the instigators right. are and those just people are exposed to it. Mm -hmm. And those people are exposed mm -hmm. to it in one way or another. And for, um, I mean, I could go through, you know, list of specific cases in the United States, but it's really varied, especially even ones directly connected to jihadist violence that um, where 
some are citizens, some have been, you know, were born citizens, some maybe immigrated as a kid. So like the uh, Boston Marathon bombers uh, were brought here as little kids. The uh, San Bernardino shooters, one of them was a U.S. citizen and the other came on what uh, Americans refer to as the 90 day fiance uh, visa, basically where they were married. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, excuse me, where they were to be married. And uh, one, this is the Fort Hood shooting, was a U.S. Army major uh, and uh, all, you know, say connected to maybe anger over U.S. Uh, U.S. military action in Iraq and in Afghanistan and in the drone program around the world. And all of them were in one way or another radicalized online, that they were in contact with um, either they hung out on ISIS forums or the uh, Boston Marathon bombers were into uh, terrorists in the Caucasus, kind of jihadis that are fighting against the Russians. Um, And uh, the Fort Hood shooter uh, was a fan of... um, the uh, Amr al-Alaki, who was a uh, American Yemeni dual citizen who also lived in Britain for a time, who was uh, kind of a, a propagandist uh, preacher for al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. And so these are, I mean, I could you know keep going with these, but there's no single profile to them. They really vary quite a bit. If we think about it more as a terrorist operative, so think, you know, al-Qaeda or ISIS sending somebody um, you know, where maybe, you know, maybe Al-Qaeda is like, oh, we can sneak somebody in. So I don't, you know, the Taliban wouldn't really because I uh, wouldn't really want to because attacking the U.S., a terrorist attacking the U.S. is not in their interest. And if they have fighters who are capable of that level of infiltration, those people will be awfully useful to them as they try to take control of Afghanistan. So when you think about it, it would be, say, an Al-Qaeda member who tries to pretend to be a Afghan refugee and manages to sneak their way to the front and then goes through the U.S. vetting process, which, of course, isn't perfect, but people who are uh, subject to things like the SIVs or uh, immigration in general, and especially refugee status, have to go through many more hoops where they're interviewed by various people whose entire job is to think of it as, We have so many people trying to get in. We can only uh, get in a few. If I think you might be shady, I'll just pick somebody else. You know, if I think you might be dangerous, I can just say no and pick somebody else. So you already have a lot of that. And there are so many easier ways to get into the United States. The September 11th attackers Mm -hmm. uh, all came in on things like tourist business and student visas. Um, The uh, Mm -hmm. illegal immigration Mm -hmm. across the Mexican border is much easier than trying to become a refugee to get into the United States. Mm -hmm. Um, There's just about every other way. So you're talking about some uh, really talented operative who'd be capable of sneaking into the US and kind of laying dormant for a while and then attacking at this opportune moment, which is pretty impressive. That's very hard to do, especially very hard to keep up the psychology of, you know, dealing with all that pressure without getting caught. And they're that good. And yet they choose what is pretty much the hardest way to try to get into the United States. So I think the chances of that, that doesn't really make sense. The chances of that are very low. And I am not especially worried about terrorist attacks emanating from people that the US flies out of Afghanistan. Thank you so much for debunking that. Um, the other um, the other point of view that I wanted to uh, run by you is um, very frequently encounter the point of view that the US should just withdraw from everywhere possible. Because um, uh, let's not generalize this too much. Let's keep this with Afghanistan, specific to Afghanistan, that the situation in Afghanistan, the Taliban is uh, basically the creation of the US um, through the funding of the Mujahideen, etc. And uh, that it is the US uh, who are uh, really um, 
in the bottom line is that it's the US who are responsible for the hegemony of this ideology within Afghanistan. Um, and therefore, the where there is a US presence, it necessarily and always makes things worse. And withdrawal is the best scheme of action. So that's a view that I hear from, from a few of my um, real life friends also. And I wanted to know your perspective on that. So the one about the U.S. creating the Taliban is wrong. It, it's just factually inaccurate. That uh, one is because um, a lot of the Mujahideen were hi- fighting on their own. Um, that that was not something that was built up by the United States. It was something that uh, was it developed on its own and was it, it built up by anybody. It was Pakistan, and then the U.S. saw it as an opportunity to really stick one to the Soviet Union. Um, American intelligence uh, basically looked at it as uh, we can do to the Soviets what they did to us in Vietnam. Um, or would like say the Russians and the Chinese did to the Americans in Vietnam by backing the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong, that here was a great opportunity to get the Soviets um, kind of mired in a really difficult war that that never ends and with these people who are fighting very hard. Um, and so it would be, it, it's just, it would be inaccurate to say that the U.S. trained everybody or even anywhere close to uh, most people. Then uh, the Taliban didn't exist uh, until the 1990s. And while there were definitely some uh, former Mujahideen uh, fighters in the Taliban. There were also some former Mujahideen fighters in the groups that opposed the Taliban or were on the other side of that civil war. So I couldn't say that the United States had no role in it. But uh, if you're going to blame any foreign country, it would be Pakistan. Um, and even that would be stretching it a little because um, a lot of it is organic within Afghanistan. Um, and the I realize I keep on switching between the sort of pronunciations of uh, doing with the accents, but uh, I I end up doing that a lot. I've been doing that even when when I teach about this stuff. I notice Mm. that I do it. Um, But the uh, so just the the Taliban specifically as something that was created by the U.S. uh, is inaccurate. You know, maybe played a little role, and um, I think at least part of it is, if anything, uh, what that argument does is underestimate the costs of inaction, that thinking that inaction or kind of, you know, indifference uh, will mean that, you know, things will just be better. And one of the biggest reasons why Afghanistan ended up where it did is because the U.S. completely withdrew and almost entirely ignored the country after the 80s. So instead of looking at it and saying, hey, there's a civil war now going on and we think one of the side is worse. Let's give some of that training and weapons and stuff to some of the sides we think are better. Uh, instead, it was like, that's eh, not a problem. And then September 11th made it very much America's problem. Now, that being said, uh, the argument that a decent amount of this is blowback for American actions has uh, quite a bit of truth to it. That the, you know, this is sort of the Al-Qaeda worldview is that, uh, you know, if I can try to put it in the best way that they would argue it, um, is uh, that we want to set up this society. And, you know, we believe that uh, a majority of us, majority of our, you know, fellows do, and we are unable to do it because the United States is backing all of these corrupt governments and these dictators and these, you know, ones that are uh, deeply offensive to us and the vision that they're imposing on society, you know, backs the military dictators in Egypt, it backs the Saudi royal family and always has, um, and among other governments. Um, and that also the U.S. military has, through various operations, if you want to go back further, the European uh, colonial powers. Uh, so, you know, the British, and I guess part of that is transferred to the U.S., the British, the French in different parts of the Middle East, um, that at times the uh, U.S. or uh, the British or other Europeans had uh, just done things to extract resources. An example is um, the, you know, the 
somewhat different in terms of both country and Muslims, but where uh, the uh, U.S. and British intelligence uh, were a big part of the coup in Iran in the 1950s that installed the Shah um, and, uh, you know, was a dictator as opposed to a, um, they previously had a prime minister, which was not, the Iranian system wasn't totally an election, but either way, prime minister, um, and where, you know, then installed the dictator. And so this part to large extent is true. Uh, you know, that said, I, I obviously don't agree with Al Qaeda. I mean, not only, uh, both don't agree with the methods, but, uh, I'm an American. I grew up in New York, you know, at some level, I take it a little personally. Um, but, the, you know, I certainly don't agree with the vision that they want to impose on society, that they want to impose, you know, they're uh, impose on unwilling people and uh, especially but not exclusively women. So I disagree with all that. But the basic argument that they are angry about things that the United States did and things that maybe made some sense at the time in like Cold War strategic logic um, or uh, grand international strategy of things like wanting to ensure the free flow of oil, for example, a continuing flow of oil that uh, that part is true. Um, the part where I really uh, disagree with the people who think that, you know, withdrawing, if you just withdraw and make it better, is that power vacuums tend to attract some really bad people. And uh, Taliban and Al-Qaeda are examples, you know, in Afghanistan. Um, ISIS in Syria and Iraq uh, is another good example of that. Um, and where even if the, so all, let's just say all the arguments about, you know, blowback and this is America's fault. And, you know, even some of these people, the United States helped train. Um, if all that is true, that's not something that we can erase. It's not something that can go away. If the USA pulled back a bunch more military from a bunch of other places, it's not like Al Qaeda or other transnational jihadists would say, okay, good. That's what we wanted. We're happy now. Thanks. You know, go live in peace. Um, that, they would still think like, uh, you did all these things to me and my people for decades. You know, I'm still really angry. If you imagine somebody, not just on a grand political level, but on a personal level, something like, uh, you know, you killed my brother in a drone strike. That's not something that goes away. You know, the anger from that doesn't disappear just because the military withdraws. And the creation of a power vacuum, what I try to stress to people who, who make this argument is that uh, the you got to compare it to alternatives. So while I think the United States deserves a lot of this criticism, the alternatives are worse. At a geopolitical level, the alternatives are China and Russia, um, both of which, if you are concerned about, say, individual freedom, are much worse. And uh, in various local levels, you see some alternatives like the Taliban, like uh, ISIS, like Al-Qaeda, and those are worse both for the people directly involved, but also because none of these problems stay in one place. That they, And this also goes back to, say, the U.S. various deployments in Africa, that once you take as a basic level that there are these terrorist groups that want to attack the U.S. and the U.K. and Australia and Canada and France and uh, Germany, that um, these exist. And they are quite determined, and especially on September 11th, also I'd say on the Paris attacks, um, among others, a few uh, terrorist attacks, the uh, London transportation bombings, and if I remember correctly, it was 2005, um, that uh, they have shown a capability, they are able to do so. And so given that that exists, is I think it is quite reasonable for democratic peoples to say, you know, to vote for governments and say, this is something that you're supposed to protect us from, like, you know, foreign invasion or say ser serial killers. And uh, therefore, if you take that, okay, um, that it's reasonable to fight against groups that are committed to trying to kill you, 
then you start getting into, well, the best way to do it is to help these various places around the world where there could be power vacuums to help local forces that are uh, might have their own problems, but are not trying to blow up people across borders um, and, uh, you know, are not trying to, say, uh, subjugate women to the degree that the Taliban is, um, that in that case, it's better to help people who are on the other side of that. And so a lot of politics whether at, you know, when it comes to these high level power, uh, power competitions, a lot of politics is not a choice between good and bad. It's a choice between bad and worse. And, um, if you want to call, say, the U.S. led, um, international order least bad, I guess is the argument I'm making. I wouldn't necessarily say good, but I think there's a degree of utopianism, um, in, well, if the U.S. just went away, then things would be better. And there's a lot of evidence that that is not the case. It's not the same as the European colonial powers after World War II pulling out of a variety of countries where they were there to mostly subjugate the people and extract resources. You know, that's not really what the U.S. was doing in Afghanistan. I, I um I don't I'm not going to Breyer score or Breyer score I never know how to pronounce that. Um, you are anything like that? I know you're not a forecaster. Um, by profession, but um, do you have a, um, what's your sense of the immediate and perhaps medium term future for Afghanistan? What's the best and what are the best and worst case scenarios in your, in your view? So you're right that I'm not a forecaster, uh, although, you know, I guess I'm not a professional forecaster, though a big part of national security strategy is looking to the future and trying to, you know, both uh, imagine various scenarios that could arise or uh, what are the risks of them? You know, there's a lot of say risk assessment and probability assessment attached to it. Um, because, you know, the, a lot of these things you need to prepare counter strategies way in advance and even something very practical in terms of governments, the way that governments and militaries work. Sometimes you have to set up buying equipment 10 years before you get it or 20 years or something. When you get to fighter jets way in advance before you get it. So you need to have a sense in the future of what you might need, what the problems would be. Um, so that said, uh, with, a lot of Afghanistan is, you know, chaotic now. There are different directions in it can go, but I think it looks pretty clear that the Taliban have it, that they have um, taken power and will be in control. Likely not of all of it. It wouldn't be surprising to see some armed resistance somewhere, um, including perhaps in the northeast of the country where the Northern Alliance was based that was fighting against them in the 90s. But uh, they will, you know, largely control the country, um, probably do, especially once the U.S., they'll wait a little uh, until the U.S. is actually out. Um, but then I would expect to see a lot of reprisals um, where various people who were suspected of working with the U.S. are killed. Um, there's also usually in these periods of upheaval, there's a decent amount of score settling, um, you know, just people unrelated. This wouldn't be, say, Taliban specific, but uh, people who you know, for whatever reason, it was, you know, their neighbor and they were, you know, really angry at them for some reason and kind of never had a chance to. And, um, you know, with the old order and now things are up in the air and uh, use violence. There was, we saw some of that in Iraq, for example. That's not atypical for a uh, country's revolutions, you know, that occur to that. You can go back to, I don't know, French Revolution, you even see some of that. And uh, the, so that would be more domestically, I think they'll, uh, almost certainly impose their fundamentalist vision. They're trying to put a positive face, positive spin on things for international media and saying things like, uh, you know, they're going to respect women's rights within the limits of Islam. That was one public statement they made. Um, and for that one, you know, have to take it as 
their interpretation of women's rights is probably not the same as yours or mine. And their interpretation of within the limits of Islam is a lot stricter than most Muslims. So I would expect that uh, that to look again, kind of uh, fundamentalist domestic uh, country. Internationally, um, there will... Uh, other countries are uh, likely going to try to poke their nose in somewhat, if anything, to influence it. I'm thinking uh, China, Russia, Pakistan um, as you know, three that not invading the country or trying to do something like the U.S. did or for that matter, like the Soviets did. Um, but the Chinese will probably be pretty interested in Afghanistan's lithium deposits. Um, lithium ends up being very useful in batteries um, and for advanced batteries. So things like, say, electric cars, um, a lot of them use lithium ion batteries. Um, and uh, I think phones, I'd have to double check on that. I'm not, not an expert on that, but I think a lot of uh, smartphones, um, similarly that lithium is a component in those batteries. Um, and so very valuable resource, pretty rare in the world. That's the sort of thing uh, China might find attractive. Um, one of the big things I'm going to be looking to watch uh, is how much do we know about Al Qaeda involvement, um, or how much did they set up? I also wouldn't be surprised to see fighting between uh, Taliban and ISIS or other groups that have been operating in power vacuums within the country that would be opposed to uh, the Taliban one way or another. Uh, one simple thing to know about ISIS is they fight basically everybody who isn't ISIS, uh, whereas Al-Qaeda was usually more selective in that. And uh, the, one of the things, uh, sort of the biggest thing that I'm worried about from an American perspective um, is that something similar will happen with Afghanistan now that happened with Afghanistan uh, with the 90s and then into the 2000s, or what happened with Iraq after the U.S. withdrew in 2011 and then went back in 2014, which is that something will happen that will end up with the U.S. going back in. Um, in other words, this might not be over. It might just be on a break. Yeah, uh, depressing prospects, almost all of those. Um yeah, it's really, um, you know, I, I'm very yeah. unhappy about it. I guess there you go. I, I can add that comment of mm. where uh, the whole thing makes me feel bad, where mm. uh, the, you know, and, and I think no matter what you wanted to happen or no matter whose fault you think it is, um, the level of human tragedy is just really high. And so I um, I feel bad for, you know, I already mentioned, say, uh, Afghan women and girls and LGBT people. Um, I feel bad for Afghans who risk themselves working with the United States or NATO or others and um, are now going to, you know, e either be hunted down or live out sort of indefinitely of being scared that somebody will come for them. Um, and I also feel bad for a lot of the um, different people from uh, the countries in the International Security Assistance Force and uh, a lot of the so diplomats and economic aid workers and human rights activists and um, all these different developments, you know, people who built girls schools and all these different people who put in a lot of effort into Afghanistan over the last 20 years where um, they weren't deciding the grand strategy. They didn't decide to invade. They didn't decide to withdraw. They didn't decide whether there would be, you know, what troop levels or what the main mission would be. Um, they didn't pick any of the Afghan leaders. They just spent a portion of their lives working hard to make the situation in Afghanistan better and working directly with some people to help them. And then, you know, and of course, not all of them, you know, I'm sure that there were some people who were uh, in some manner, you know, say corrupt or, uh, I don't know, selfish or, or excessively violent or anything like that. You know, the U.S. has, uh, for example, prosecuted some Americans as war criminals for actions in Afghanistan. Um, but overall, a lot of these people went and worked really hard and were just trying to help people. And uh, the whole thing ending this way is tragic. And um, I'm, I'm probably going to feel bad about it for a while. 
Yeah, I I mean, my my parents fled the uh, Islamization of Pakistan under General Zia, um, and I feel um, so. I personally feel a bit like I'm one of the ones who got out um, of a somewhat similar situation, um, and I just uh, I feel a really strong sense of horror. Um, and kind of gratitude for my undeserved good fortune. Um, yeah, not sure what else to say, really. Um, thank you so much, Nicholas. Um, this has been really informative. And I very much recommend everybody um, follow you on Twitter, subscribe to ArcDigi, and also take a look at your articles. Um, the book is a bit more kind of technical, um, it's a very good introduction, if uh, a very good account. Clearly, if you uh, have a more specialized interest in military strategy and warfare, etc. And uh, thank you so much for talking to me. Right, thank you for having me. Have a wonderful week, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Two for Tea. Your patronage helps to keep this podcast alive and flourishing. Your support means the world to me. Stay well, stay happy, and have a wonderful week.